Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy in fabulous Missoula, Montana. MTDA is a state virtual school for uh, uh, public schools across the state of Montana, and this is the Education Situation Room podcast. Unfortunately, Wes Fryer could not join us tonight. He's been sent on a government mission far behind the Iron Curtain. So he is currently um, under deep cover um, somewhere in unidentifiable Eastern Europe. And at the last minute, we were able to be joined tonight by Dr. Martin Horeji, Professor of Education at the University of Montana. Good evening, Martin. Thank you, Jason. I'm excited about this. So let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, we have a lot of stories to talk about this week, um, a lot of interesting things going on in the news. And um, as we've been talking about in, in recent weeks, um, a lot of uh, what's going on right now is obviously a, a um, uh, kind of a, a, a outplay from the election um, and, and the results of the election. I want to remind everyone, though, as I remind most other folks, that I do think we would be wringing our hands as much about the interesting things that are going on if the other candidate had won uh, the, the presidential election as well. So I think there are a lot of interesting issues that are certainly inspired by the, the presidential election results, but I, I honestly think that would have been the case no matter which candidate had won. So I want to start off with an article from Engadget. Uh, Trump subs in a YouTube address uh, for a press conference, um, and by the way, all the links to this week's show are featured at our website, edtechsr.com, where you can always find the links to all the articles that are the source of our discussion. And um, earlier this week, President-elect Donald Trump, instead of doing what is traditional of the uh, president-elect, which is to have a press conference and start answering the questions uh, 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 millions of questions from reporters about the upcoming transition in the first hundred days and the presidential policy agenda, potential cabinet secretaries instead uh, posted a brief video on YouTube that is sense, essence is a two minute and 40 second um, things are going well video, which is um, interesting on so many levels to me. So I guess first and foremost, Martin, did you have an opportunity to watch President-elect Trump's uh, YouTube press conference? You know, I didn't out of choice. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, I, there's so much happening in so many different angles on this yeah. that, I, you know, I, Jason, honestly, I called this election. Did I tell you that? It made sense to me exactly what happened. And I think because I wasn't paying that much attention to all of the, um, the popular things that were going on. Um, so when I looked back, I thought, you know, where are people getting this information? And so now as I watch Trump, basically I like to stay a couple of days behind after the dust settles. But that's just me. Maybe that's from living in Montana or something. If I follow it, you know, uh, in real time, it stops making sense. But right. what I think is interesting here, and this is this has dramatic I, I can't underestimate this dramatic repercussions for the entire field of journalism and possibly the United States. And that is that the element of interpretation has been provided directly to the common citizen. Right. Normally the journalist tries to interpret some of what's going on and says, okay, here's what's reality. Here's what's being said. And somewhere in between is this, is this news story. 
And I think Trump has literally bypassed the news and is talking directly to the people. Yet we in, you know, I, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but I think we're woefully unprepared in terms of our discrimination skills to figure out what's actually real. And so honestly, when I, I looked at this and I heard about this right, right away, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to let the dust settle on this because I don't know if it's as much what he says, but how he says it. Right. And that's where, where, uh, I'm kind of watching right now because it's a, it's a whole new world. My feeling ultimately is that it's giving, it's empowering the journalists to possibly go back to what journalism really was. So instead of reporting the news, they are collecting information and reporting that. Right. And the news could be whatever somebody says and whether or not that's real, you know, is, is, is a tough gig. I guess we're going to talk about that later. Right. Yeah, it, it, we will, I think, probably in a number of different realms. But it's also interesting to compare, I think, the Obama administration and the Trump, future Trump administration regarding social media savvy, right? Uh, Obama got a lot of credibility for being the first Internet president and, and working social media channels. You know, really like, like, like no other politician. I mean, obviously, um, uh, social media was really its infancy during the, the, the two Bush administration. So it'd be tough to compare that. But, you know, it's almost as if, uh, Obama becomes the transitional president for social media that he was, was very, uh, adept at using it and was able to, to use it to craft his message, but still use traditional media channels in order to send out his message where Trump seems interested for better or for worse. Um, you know, to to bypass those channels altogether and just say, I don't need to do that because I have a microphone, um, you know, very much at, at my disposal. Um, it's also interesting to me related to this that, you know, people are hanging with bated breath on Trump's Twitter account. Right. This is the same Twitter account that was taken away from from uh, Mr. Trump. Um, you know, the, the 72 hours before the election, because they were terrified that he would say something that that would cost him the election. Um, and here we are, you know, uh, hanging on, you know, 140 characters or less as as presidential lore. And that also is such a, a, a shift in the way we have treated, you know, prominent national politicians to this point in history. And, and again, again, it's not a, a for better or for worse argument yet. It's just that it's a radical shift that we need to be made aware of. And I, I would argue it might be for the worse. In other words, it, it, it dumbed down everything. And that's right. To 140 characters or less, right? Yeah, that's not, that's barely a headline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think what's going to happen is there are going to be a lot of things that are going to catch people off guard, which there obviously have. I mean, if you think about the things that have sort of been rolled back from the campaign talk, you know, I know this isn't a political show, but uh, I think you can't explain border security in 140 characters. No. Too much gray. There's too right. many interactions, too many deals, too many treaties, too much history. Right. So. You know, it, it might be enough to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to head with that guy. But in other words, the idea of having so much uh, complexity, you know, you, we long almost for the day, some of us, uh, you know, of kind of the Henry Kissinger of the, the monotone, drawn out academic um, explanation. You know, eventually you might end up with the same outcome or the same decision, but the ability to understand how we ended up there 
is is much deeper versus now it's it's almost a winging it and then just going with it. Right. Exactly. Well, and you mentioned the the fact that nuances don't play well in 140 characters or less. And that's one of the things that I've always found interesting and also a little challenging about the amount of Twitter chats that happen in education. They're really easy to get involved, to get good suggestions, to find collaborative partners, to uh, to provide support uh, to your colleagues and to your friends. But a few times I've tried to discuss a not even a controversial issue, but maybe to front a, a, a less than popular opinion, either for argument's sake or, or because I happen to advocate for that opinion. It's just really difficult to explain the nuances of a complex argument um, unless you're going to string it out over 10 or 15 tweets. At that point, what's the point, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting now that we're facing the phenomenon of of having to deal with you know presidential um, uh, proclamations. Basically, it's literally a proclamation, right? It's a quick declarative state uh, declarative statement uh, via the social media piece. He's not even you know posting quick snippet videos like. Maybe- you know, but seriously, Jason, he's move. Is this his first deliberate attempt at YouTube? I think it might be because yeah, I don't remember so anything like that from the campaign. He's moved from Twitter to Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. You know, if you think about what's capable on the YouTube side, it's massive. But again, he has eliminated everybody in between him and the viewer, which, of course, you know, his, he doesn't necessarily have the, quite the depth of vocabulary or complexity that requires some sort of disaggregation of ideas and explanations, but he's real, he's eliminated the middleman. And now he's talking in a format that we're all comfortable with. It is tremendously scalable. And honestly, with so many of the news stories being rolled over onto YouTube, so you could literally look them up later, you know, which we do often, we end up with somebody who's, who's found that jump to the complex world, which happens to be YouTube. Yep. But I don't know. It's, it's uh, an interesting. It's an interesting twist. That's why I like staying a day, a deliberate day or two behind. Let, you know, the fires burn down, things calm down, the dust settles. And then I look at it and say, okay, you know, he's, he has changed it. I'm not, you know, going to take a side for and against because I don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of news stories that I'm thinking, I'm not getting the picture here. You're not telling me the whole story. Maybe you can't, maybe there's a conflict of interest, maybe it'll offend your advertisers, who knows what, but here it is. And then I have to learn to make the call. So I essentially think the sophistication of the American viewer is going to have to vastly increase in a very short amount of time. But will it? I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. And for those of you that had the opportunity to watch last week's podcast, we, we did start digging into the, the fake news problem, and we shared a number of links that, that are pretty prominently shared on the Internet um, in, in case you, you've missed them to this point. But um, the one of them is the uh, How to Spot Fake News um, Google document that was, that was uh, pushed around by a, a professor that, by the way, has been under attack for the last seven days as being anti-right, which was inevitable, right, that, you know, they're starting to now question whether or not, uh, you know, the – 
the keepers of the lore related to face news are themselves biased, uh, which I, I was probably inevitable. But uh, there's also links to an NPR story about a study release that says that our students in particular are woefully unprepared to be able to distinguish between official news sources or, or what was considered to be news and what's considered to be fake news. Um, and there was a number of, 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 of interesting ways that they measured that among students. But here we are, you know, it, it, it will you know, impact the classroom near you, right? And I'm not, you know, I, I obviously have some bias towards uh, a lot of this instruction happening in the social studies because that's my content background. But really, soon enough, I think this is going to be every content background's mission that, you know, this was the inevitable um, byproduct of the mass increase in the amount of, of, of information available and a vast lowering of the bar of, of, of getting information out to mass audiences. So, you know, push comes to shove now, we may be compelled finally to, to really dig deeply into uh, the way we teach information science to students to you empower them to kind of make it through this process. Process. Um, and when, you know, your your top elected official happens to be contributing to that mass of information without context, um, that requires even more savvy. And, and again, that's not about the person involved. I mean, obviously, he's no, uh, uh, you know, he's no newbie to, to social media. He's been effectively using it throughout the campaign. But the bottom line is, is that this is this was an inevitable with a president like Obama, who, you know, again, very deftly used um, social media to kind of push an agenda. So well, try this on for size, Jason. What if we can't tell the difference between real and fake news or the nuance between real and fake is is well below the resolution of the average person? And, and in fact, I, I recently presented on this and I used two topics. One, um, and, and first of all, I, I paraphrased it or, or contained it by talking about some of the ways to spot fake news, which actually are taught by um, the uh, the workshops, say, from the National or the, um, the Library of Congress, where you actually look at a document and try to figure out what what's the reality of this. But. Um, you know, you, the first one was considered the source. Well, if it's coming from the president, let's just assume that maybe there's some credibility there. I mean, you, you wouldn't say, oh, it's from the president, so immediately dismiss it. I mean, think of the irony there. Um, the last one on the list was consult the experts. Right. Well, okay, I'm going to give you two examples. One, Let's just say that there's an Olympics going on, a summer Olympics, and all of a sudden somebody reports that the swimming pool has turned bright green. But it's completely safe, but we don't know why it's turned green. Uh, what's the public supposed to do? I mean, first, is that real? I mean, it, it sounds bizarre, and you look at a picture of it, and it's even more bizarre. Right. And it's totally safe in a place where they're swimming in sewage and the uh, head of Olympic security was robbed and, you know, all these other things that are just so mind boggling that, that our reality is, is a little tenuous. And then let's take the second example, Donald Trump's wife. Okay. Paraphrasing or plagiarizing possibly the current president's wife's speech. I mean, how weird does it have to get? 
And then we have something in, in, in the news pundancy that I tend to call counter-ethicists that would come in and say, well, actually, when Melania Trump said it, she meant it. But when, when uh, Michelle Obama said it, she didn't mean it. So technically, it's not plagiarism because the first person to ever mean these words was the second person to use them. You know, I, you know, honestly, trying to trying to um, take that apart gets pretty weird. And if I use the standard, and I actually have the list in front of me of ways to spot fake news, I'm thinking, who is the who's the expert on Melania Trump? Did she work before she was an immigrant? I mean. Where's the, where's the person that knows this stuff? Or consider the source. What on earth does the source have to do with this? I have right. no idea. Yep. So when I, when I, I mean, my heart really goes out to the kids who are trying to, you know, dismantle this stuff and figure out what's true. And I look at it and think, I, you know, it's mind boggling. I think that's why we got up every morning wondering what on earth, you know, prior to the election and now, I guess, after the election, what is, going to happen. It just was getting continuously weirder. And the truth became something kind of um, scalable. Yeah, it's sort of true. That's not what he meant, or that's not what was supposed to happen. But I mean, like even now with carrier air conditioners and Ford Motor Company not moving overseas or not moving across the border. Was he right? Was this always going on? Maybe this was just some play that had started a long time ago and he said, hey, Carrier, I'm going to give you a bunch of tax breaks if you guys play along. I mean, how weird can it get? So right. I think asking people to try to dissect this is is above their pay grade. So then you, you have to decide what's really important, not what's true. I mean, that's that's the my latest take on it. Well, right. and what's funny about it, you mentioned the carrier air conditioning story. Um, I was listening to the radio this morning when that was being largely dealt with by National Public Radio. And frankly, I think they missed some of the nuances of the story. Right. And it's it's hard to argue that there's a more professional and um, uh, 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 gifted newsroom than than NPR's national um, uh, uh, national newsroom. And yet. I, you know, I read things later that called into question the way they were reporting that story, right? Not that it was biased, it just was, this was a small percentage of the story. And, and it goes back to, in my mind, it all comes back to the notion that information availability itself really means very little, right? It's, 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 it's powerful, right? It's, it certainly changes the, the nature of people and information, but in the end, Unless you can evaluate it, it doesn't mean squat. Well, well, you know, Wes isn't here, so I'm going to maybe step in on the uh, the tinfoil hat side. <laughs> what does Carrier actually make? Uh, air conditioners, I think. Okay, so what do you think is the nemesis of climate change? The nemesis of climate change? Oh, I would assume the power-hungry, I mean... How about like, air conditioners? Well, yeah, it very much is because... So yeah, now you've got... An, a, a, we're apologetic and supportive of air conditioners. That's fascinating. Well, so think about the... It could be a lot of things. I Obviously, you know, uh, as, a, as a professor, I won't jump on this very far, but I thought that would, that there's a degree of irony there right, right. that is 
that, that could be mind-boggling in terms of the people feeling that that now they need to support the air conditioner company. Maybe in a wide obviously Mexico is a much hotter locale on this planet than say Missoula or say the United States. I mean it's further south. You know, the chances that they could have a larger number of people buying their product south of us is greater if yeah. they have money for it. But the idea of air conditioners, I mean, just the, the symbolism there to me, that's what stood out. But everyone was in a rush to look at, at the truth or the fiction behind any particular statement that was being made. And I'm looking at what the product is thinking, this is weird. Why couldn't it be something else? Drill bits, you know, anything, air conditioners. What does an air conditioner do? You know, it, it, the hotter it gets, the more we use that product. Right. The more it contains the atmosphere inside a building and isolates it from the real world. To me, that's that's like the big step into artificially believing that you're in control of the world. Right. The air conditioner. You know, so I, I honestly, to me, that was that was tremendously symbolic. I'm not going to hear that anywhere on the news. Yeah. Because we're too busy trying to figure out something else. But that's just me. That's, you know, it's just something I see, I hear. It's it's like used in New Orleans during Katrina. You know, the air conditioning stopped, the air conditioning in the Superdome, the air conditioning in cars. You know, it's we're incapable of surviving without this thing. So when that one popped up, I thought, well, of all the things, that one is the most diametrically opposed to climate change. Yeah, it's so but, true. Yep. You know, even Wes mentioned at the end, I don't know if it was last podcast or the one before, you know, dealing with air conditioning or dealing with, um, you know, the heat. And I thought that's, yeah, that's right. But you've got to think about what the, the meaning is. We're doing getting out of education right now, so we should... Yeah. Well, but, but the bottom line is, is that, and, and to be clear, these are the kind of discussions you should be having with your students, right? Like, you know, you have to take the facts that exist, which you may have to, you know, actually cook out of even mainstream news sources, right? Like, um, if you're if you're reading um, news sources that have a history of bending to one side or the other, you know, like if you're presenting both... Um, uh, the, the MSNBC and the Washington Times, right? Like if you're using two sources that tend to one lean left and one lean right, you're going to have to still cook the facts out of there before you're able to to discuss these issues. But I mean, this is the kind of analysis that that really is required. Which means, you know, and even if you start evaluating sources here, uh, first of all, uh, governors tend to be a little more um, uh, a little more impactful of things like companies not moving out an area than presidents are. The second piece is, remember, not all the carrier jobs are staying in the United States. Some are still going to Mexico, which is the analysis I read on a couple of blogs earlier today, which was very, very deep in the number of the, the main national stories that make that happen. Like, those are all facts you have to discuss to try to help come up with truth. And the bottom line is, is that this is this was true in the pre-internet area, too. The news is just news. Truth is is probably somewhere uh, uh, more nuanced past that, and that's that's a that's a, a classroom action, that is a educational act, that is a citizenship act. All those things together um, belong as 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 part of the discussion. And and for me, cooking it way way back to 
to education, right? This is the reason why we can't replace, you know, schools with Google, right? Like Google itself is just a tool to give you access to information. In the end, unless we're spending, you know, our 13 years with in, in public school with students, helping them build some 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 tactful skills uh, to navigate these information sources, then, um, you know, we will not be informed, period. We will all be kind of hooked on, 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 on YouTube press conferences. So yeah, it turns into groupthink, or if we're all able to choose, you know, the media we want to follow within this one bowl of Skittles, if you will. And, you know, so that's, you mentioned the, you know, basically websites, we've got Fox, we've got CNN, we got MSNBC, ABC, et cetera. You know, that's, that's not a very large pool. Yep. You know, if you start getting, like I was getting BBC alerts about the election prior to U.S. alerts. They were going right. and calling things because I think the folks here were a little bit gun shy to, you know, make a mistake. And I don't, I, I mean, I'm looking at what, what the world thinks, but even that is still following the same general direction of what we'd call news, which news is feeding content to eyeballs so advertisers can make money. You know, if you think about it. So if you go very deep, well, now it's taking too long in order to, you know, the, the eyeballs are fixed on one spot. So the ad is not necessarily being consumed, I guess. Right. So I have to always look at it and say, I'm, I'm basically in charge of putting together my own newspaper or my own, my own website of news by looking at a lot of different sources and kind of triangulating them and then trying to say, well, okay, why is this here? Why is this right. a topic? Why are the really good stories? I follow CNN a lot. Why are the good stories below the fold? Below the fold, you know, meaning in the old days back, it was un when the newspaper was folded in half and put in a machine or on display, the less important stories were on the other side of the paper that was under the fold. And I look here and I have to scroll down to find the really big stuff. The rest is all just, you know, it's almost like you, you like to use the word clickbait. The top news stories are clickbait. If I look yeah, at them, I think, yep. I, I mean, first of all, I don't know if they're news. They're just events. And then I have to look at it and say, okay, is this really of any digestible nutrition here? Or is this just something else that caught my eye? Because the big stuff is further down. Right. Stuff with the bigger implications. So, and I, you know, I feel bad for the kids having to essentially trust the adults thinking, oh, this must be important. Yep. Trump on YouTube is more important than what Trump says on YouTube. Yep, absolutely. One last uh, program note. Uh, you were right, Martin. I could not find a direct Trump video, and I was just scrolling through the, the campaign official YouTube channel, and I did not see one Trump direct to, to, to population or direct to the, to the voters video. And that you're right. That's, that's a stunning departure and probably a sign of something to come. So, um, you know, look forward, I guess, to more uh, Trump vision um, across a YouTube screen near you. It'll be interesting to watch. Okay, moving on. Um, Apple Insider reports uh, today that Tim Cook has announced that customers will be able to expect AirPods 
in the next few weeks. Um, and, and I only uh, am, am interested in this story because we seem to have uh, some apocalyptic obsession with Apple's good and bad decisions on this podcast, partly because because we're all, I think, Apple fanboys by, by nature. But um, I, the reason why this, this was interesting to me is that uh, I have many friends that have adopted the iPhone 7 or iPhone 7 Plus, there's almost universal rave reviews uh, of those that own the device, except for 50% say the lack of headphone jack is no big deal, and 50% say that it's terrible. And uh, I have some experience with this. I'm not an iPhone 7 um, uh, owner, although I would like to happily announce that I did pull the trigger on a uh, Google Pixel XL phone. It's on massive back order from Verizon, but there was a huge Black Friday special, which talked me into purchasing the the device. So I'll be having uh, uh, all my Google Android dreams come true very, very soon. But um, the uh, I've been trying to use Bluetooth uh, headphones more, not because um, I anticipate losing the port anytime soon, at least not for the next two years, which would be my, my estimated lifespan with, with the, the Pixel phone, but because... Um, I, you know, I, I find it convenient and having carrying around wires is, is not ideal. And I have to say, um, the Bluetooth technology still isn't super great yet in the lower level consumer devices that tend to dominate my carry around headphones. And those are usually chunky things that I can lose easily or wash in the washer or otherwise, but it's still a problem pairing. And I'm pretty sure that Apple pods are a thousand percent better than the $20, you know, uh, Bluetooth earbuds that you can get on Amazon. But I do think that Apple faces an uphill battle. Um, you know, uh, it, they'll win. Bluetooth is going to win. Wireless was bound to go away, or I'm sorry, wired headphones were bound to go away. But they are facing perceptual issues. So, Martin, I, I don't believe that you're going to be in the market for an iPhone 7. Oh, yeah, I'm always in the market. <laughs> but we do, have, we do have two of them, you know, in our family. And Yep. Honestly, uh, we took off on our Thanksgiving trip, and my wife had a book on tape, but she forgot the dongle. Oh. So we couldn't plug it into our car system, and uh, you know, we were stuck. But on the other hand, um, one of the differences, Apple's Bluetooth or Apple's earbuds, earbuds, what do they call them, earbuds? AirPods. AirPods, sorry. They're AirPods are different than a lot of the other Bluetooth headphones. I have Bluetooth headphones. I love Bluetooth headphones because they are 95% better than a full wired headphone. That 5% in the AirBuds, AirPods, is that there is no wire at all. Whereas I have Beats headphones, um, wireless headphones, and there is a wire connecting the right ear to the left ear. Right. Uh, So... Even that gets in the way, right? So I think it's 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 going to open up a new avenue in, in this kind of technology. I would like to see it. I wouldn't mind having you know one functional piece. I do worry about the battery life. That is not much battery life. Yep. You know, and and I think they should have doubled them up and had a charging kit that had four, you know, four pieces in it, and then maybe even come up with some cool swivel way that it could be a right or a left. So you could actually have anyone in any, any ear rather than having a dedicated right and left. Um, 
I, I just look at that and think, how can I get more time out of these things? You know, if you had, if you could just run one of them, you just right. you do twice the battery life. Yeah. Because you really, you what you've done is you've just downstreamed the tether. Yeah. You know, now you're tethered to the recharging station or tethered to society, as I like to look at it. You know, if I'm going on a, a camping trip, right? You know, I guess I can bring a solar panel or something, you know, to try to charge these. But otherwise, it's over. You know, even I think we discovered that I first discovered it with GPS watches when they had about a six-hour battery life. We can go out and run for more than six hours, yep. and then we lose our navigation. Yep. So the idea of having something that goes longer, I mean, why do you have to, I guess at the aid stations or at the, you know, your support station, you can swap GPS watches for a new one. Um, but otherwise, it, it you're, you've just moved the problem um, somewhere else, but right. that's still a problem. So, but it's funny you should mention that because that, that the charging problem with my $20 pair of, of uh, and, and to be clear, they sound fine, they're, they're not that big of a pain to pair. They're they're a general pain, but not awful. But I think the battery life is the Achilles heel on that product as well, right? Like it, it gets about three hours. Um, in a busy day, I can have my you know between you know walking to work and taking a walk at lunch and having headphones on while I'm around the office. I like to listen to music um, when I work. I mean that's that's seven or eight hours of time, and I, I do happen to have a nice pair of Sony Bluetooth. Uh, headphones, big headphones that I can put on that 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 are Bluetooth that that do have a, a, a day long battery in them, but the smaller ones don't. And you know, I I I, I will patiently wait. I do think that that once uh, the iPhone Seven gets wider adoption, it's going to force force even cheaper Bluetooth manufacturers to develop some you know better uh, feature sets into their products. But the, you know, it, it, it's still going to take some time. Yeah. Um, you know, I would also note that that we don't we're not sharing an article related to this this week, but there is an increase in volume regarding iPad Air three rumors. Um, I, I there was a, a, an article earlier today that said <laughs> hmm. um, it's been confirmed that they will be releasing in the spring. I don't know what that means. I guess you could just call it confirmed. So it's been confirmed that uh, the iPad Air three will be released in a springtime launch. Uh, I'm also hoping that there is a new um, a iPad Mini 5 uh, that bumps up uh, the, the specs of, on that particular device. But I, I, it's good to see that that's going to come soon. I've been disappointed. I think I might be in the arc, uh, market for an iPad Air 3. Um, something actually, it, it, Martin had talked me into this as, as being true earlier that Martin the, the for the footprint <laughs> of the iPad Air. The iPad Air was, you know, small enough that it felt kind of like a mini, but still had the full, you know, full features of the iPad Air. And so I, I think I might be in the market for one of the newer models. But it's been two years since that's been updated, and I think what that do you think they could do. I mean, do look at they could do a speed bump, longer battery life. They could do a, um, I don't know, get rid of the headphone jack. I mean, what else can you do to this thing? Well, I, I do think the battery part would make some difference, although you'd be hard-pressed to find a better tablet battery than an iPad, right? Yeah, but is, I mean, really, what what's what earth-shaking thing? Can you imagine any? I no, guess yeah, I, I think the processor power matters. What? 
the processor matter, uh, processing power matters. I mean, I, I think part of the reason why it matters is that I do think uh, you know Apple stuff lasts longer than almost any other manufacturer, right? I mean, I have a I have a now a nine year old Mac desktop in my basement that is just fine, right? Like it's it's perfectly fast. It's it's statistically similar to a high or medium end desktop you could buy today. It's 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 a fine platform. Mac stuff lasts, Apple stuff lasts, but the problem is the software tends to advance faster. Now, to be clear, the iPad Air 2 had ridiculous uh, 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 specs, right? Like the the chip sitting in the iPad Air 2 was a desktop class, laptop class chip, right? Super fast. But I do think that if I'm going to invest in something at the end of 2016 or in 2017, I don't want something that's two years old. I want something that's going to give me you know, three to four years of the latest, greatest apps that are going to become more and more and more processor intensive over time. Maybe that's me as a power user, but you're right. I don't think there's much more you can do with the platform that, and that's part of the reason why. I didn't say that. I just asked you what you could do with it. Oh, well, oh, what I could do with it. Well, <laughs> see, the thing is, and it's actually, I, I, I'd like to have this discussion with both you and Wes at some point in the same room, is that I don't create with my iPad. Right. My iPad is really just a consumption device, not to take away from what people do with creation. It's just that I don't create with mine. Right. Like it is it is a podcast uh, a piece. It is a, a newspaper reader. It is a flipboard service. It is a video uh, player. It is a um, it's once in a while a, a, a video recorder. Uh, you know, when I want to just record a YouTube video of my face, I, the iPad's great for that, but it's really not that much more for me personally. Once in a while, I'll use a really media-intensive game, but that's not that often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I, I, I know that we have to speed things up. I know we have to have better battery life, but I think if you look at the consumer use of the thing. I mean, it's a, it's an inch deep and a mile wide. Yeah. And so what would happen if you embrace that? Yep. You know, and, and looked at it and said, this will be the end all. I honestly, I think there's a lot more that could happen with it if it was um, basically limited more to the, the shallow creation and the massive consumption. Yep. And I, I think there's room for, for different and additional cameras and speakers. I think that the interface, I, I don't mind hard buttons. I find it fascinating that, that, uh, as you move up in the, the digital camera realm, you get more physical dials and buttons and dedicated controls, not working through nested menus or not working through, you know, multiple selections. So you can do things faster and simpler and customized. So I think that there's there's more that could happen with the thing, right? Um, if they wanted to go that route, but if they're looking for this pristine, you know, shiny device that's sitting on your um, on your I don't know coffee table or desktop or something like that, right? And I think yeah, it's it's a pretty much fixed design. But if you wanted to create some really wild looking thing that just was customizable to what people are, are interested in doing, there's a lot of opportunity to modify it. Right. I don't know if they will though. 
Uh, so, Martin, you're an interesting end user because you have an iPad Air and you also have an iPad Pro. Um, and the mini. Yeah, in the mini. So. Uh, what's funny about that for me is that, yeah, it's your, your mug's friends here. Um, the, the, the funny thing about that is that I never see you with your iPad Pro. It's usually the Air or the Mini, right? Right. So let's talk about the iPad Pro for a second. Has that, it, it, why is that not in, in more your more regular workflow? It, it is in some ways. Um, it actually fits just below my MacBook Air. Um, because I, I never use the thing without a keyboard, which kind of undoes its tablet side, um, which means it isn't the touch screen that I want. It's that it runs apps, very specific apps that I use on a bigger screen. Right. So it does what I essentially I wish I could do with my Air, but I can't. Now, if you talk about hybridizing the operating system, similar to what Google might do, by right. running an Android platform across the board, then you might undo why I like the iPad if I could get the kind of that inch deep mile wide stuff going on my laptop. So, I mean, that's honestly, I, I, I do a lot with, uh, with, um, physical science peripherals, um, apps, um, that, that maybe capture video and allow some analysis, um, I use like my geek of the week is a, <clears throat> is an infrared camera that I can plug into my iPad or whatever, but I, I can't easily do that with my laptop. And if, so what it means is it isn't that I want that environment. It's that environment affords me a handful of superpowers, just like the laptop environment affords me those superpowers. It isn't the iPad that I like. It's what the iPad can do. If those could be ported to the desktop somehow, then, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited. There's a lot that could go on, but at the moment it can't. It's right. not. So that's where the, the trade-off is. And yeah, I don't carry my, um, if, if I have to carry something this, well, I, my MacBook Air is smaller and lighter than my iPad Pro with the keyboard. Right. So, and it lasts longer. That iPad Pro battery, I don't know. So why am I interested in the iPad Pro? I, it, because it's big and it runs the apps. Right. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I, I've been flirting with one since it was released, and I can't justify it because, like, I keep thinking about, you know, what I really like to have is something sitting in my bag that, um, you know, and, and, and Martin knows that I carry a uh, kind of a small-ish tactical bag uh, that has – uh, some personal stuff in it and uh, just enough technology to be able to do my job at a moment's notice. That's my standard for for what I carry around with me. And I thought the iPad Pro was maybe that for me, um, that it was, you know, it was big and beautiful and, and I like a big and beautiful digital device, but at the same time it was portable enough that it could, it could follow me around. But honestly, I'm, I'm now carrying around a three, four year old, you know, Lenovo PC laptop. It's a little mini one. It's a little 12 inch Lenovo laptop that I picked up used, um, uh, for next to nothing. And, and if I keep the small battery in it, that's the key piece here. And, and yeah. laptop batteries are not nearly as good as, as any, um, uh, you know, iPad battery. So that's a, um, you know, a downfall here. But the very bottom line is, is that I'm better off with that or with even a slow Chromebook, you know, for what I would need to do to, um, 
you know, what I would need to do to do my job at a moment's notice, right? And so the iPad was too much to, you know, to, to, to meet that standard for me. Um, but again, you know, remembering I am not a creator with my iPad. I never have been. Um, not that I never will be, but it's just not something I do. I create more with my cell phone. I create more with the desktop and the laptop than I do that. So it's, it's interesting form factor to me. I don't know anyone else that carries a pro, like no one else. Like I know plenty of people that carry around Airs and, you know, old iPad 3s and da 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 da. I know nobody except for Martin, who I never see carrying it, that's, that's, you know, that's carrying around a pro. So I still don't know who the market for it is. They're selling them. I think they're beautiful products. It's just not for me. Well, I think there's a very narrow range where it is the go-to device for what it does. And that's probably because of screen size, you know, and maybe the pen. No. I think there's, there's, there's just total magic there. But if I look at what percentage of my job or my interest actually is found in what that can do that that couple of percent you know it's it's not really worth it for most of the most of the stuff I do I can do it another way and I can get a greater return in saving weight or smaller size or more devices or faster everything else right so that's that's where I see the trade off if I was doing the things that it need that it does very well then yeah that's that's the go to the other thing I've discovered is when I'm using like an Apple TV or throwing it up on a screen, then the small screen is is the same as the big screen. Right. The point. is kind of nice, but if I'm working on a you know an eight by ten foot screen, you know projection screen off of a device, I kind of like the smaller one for simplicity, mobility, muscle movement, um, things like that. So it it actually works out quite well. So it okay. But anyway. Okay, great. Uh, the next story uh, comes from uh, today's arts, or Ars Technica, and this is interesting because of, of Martin and I are both cord uh, cord cutters. Although I'm not sure if you had a cord in the first place, Martin, to cut. But um, uh, the, <laughs> um, ours is reporting that Netflix is now allowing an offline mode that lets you download shows and then watch them offline. It's limited to just four. On Netflix own shows, uh, Stranger Things, uh, Orange is the New Black, Narcos, and The Crown. Um, by the way, those are some great shows if you're not uh, otherwise watching them. But uh, I, interesting conversation with Martin. Uh, Martin, you don't have cable TV, right? No, sorry. In fact, you don't. Do you have a TV? We have a screen, right? That an Apple TV plugged into, right? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Is that a TV? And uh, that's fairly recent. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I no, we've. We raised our kids without one. I mean, but, you know, we got a house full of screens. Right. We just don't have one that has, you know, uh, real-time ads. Right. So I, I do find that an interesting twist because if you think of the market share that Netflix stole from um, the places that had the mobility, the DVDs right. or even, you know, I don't know, I assume there were VCR, you know, retailers still when Netflix started, but then the ability like iTunes to download the movie and then go with it. Um, so what is the advantage? And I, and I did read that and I thought, you know, there is something to that in terms of um, detethering a little bit from the wireless speed, you know, that you can count on it somewhere else. Obviously cars, you don't want to drop Netflix onto your data plan. Right. You know, and then have the kids 
kids watch. Um, but then I assume also with their, uh, um, with those Netflix originals, is that what they're called? Right. You know, that what they're doing is they have created a physical presence for their work that could go outside the Netflix environment. Yep. It means that they, they're probably not looking at the customer. They're looking at the market share for their product. And their product is those Netflix original, you know, movies or whatever. So if it can move beyond that, then it, then it'll be kind of interesting. But right now I just see it as, as they've packaged their work for consumption in other ways, possibly. Right. But I don't know. Is there stranger things? Is there more to it? Or I thought that one ended. Um, no, it's still going. It um, is. Yeah, I think at least I, well, that the first season is, um, had just ended and it was renewed for a second season. Um, in, in fact, one of the things that's most interesting to me about Netflix, I, I'm glad for the offline piece, uh, mm-hmm. Mostly because when I travel by airplane, I do like to watch videos, and that's where the Amazon service currently is exceeding Netflix because a lot of Amazon content, including stuff that they that they uh, are are just licensing and don't own themselves, is downloadable onto your device across the platform. And taking advantage of that, right? You know, and and uh, you know, to be clear, if you are living in an urban area, you might not know about a phenomenon that is is very uh, prevalent in in uh, uh, rural states like Montana that you may not have you may have broadband but the broadband has significant uh, bandwidth caps because you're on a satellite internet connection it's decently sort of fast but that's not the limitation the limitation is that you only get so many gigs per month uh, in fact Martin and I have a, a colleague that lives up in the mountains um, uh, professor at the University of Montana that doesn't that has satellite internet and likes to watch movies on his iPad and so for him, this would be a real revolutionary, um, uh, you know, revolutionary um, uh, access point to him. But the the interesting piece about this, in addition to the the access, is that Netflix keeps releasing more and more and more series that they're making themselves. Uh, I was counting last, uh, I saw a list of of new things being released in December on Netflix, and like they were having eleven series premiere in December, right? That's kind of one yeah, of their premiere. All eleven at once? Yeah, well and 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 they the, they're all new. These are not just new seasons of previously uh released information. This is uh these are new series. And and a lot of them are animated and kid shows and a lot of them are documentary series, right? But still, like they are producing original content like crazy. And that's awesome. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, for all the hand wringing we have about media disruption, you know, leading to uh, maybe a decrease in quality for journalism, I don't think that that rule is true in, in entertainment media. Like I, the fact that Netflix has creative control to create series that probably would never play even on the most aggressive of cable stations, I think is awesome. And it's certainly something that's, that's laudable and is very exciting, I think, in the media landscape in 2016. I think that's great. In fact, sometimes I wonder, um, if they're designing it with the anticipation that there could be binge watching. Yep. I mean, if you try to binge watch the History Channel, you realize that the redundancy of content, you know, that would normally, you know, you got the commercial that's instantaneous online, except uh, when it was originally shown, it might be five minutes. So then they rehash it. And then, you know, it basically you're, you're, you're two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back every time. And it just becomes untenable if you're binge watching. 
Yep. You know, so if you realize that the person may be watching the entire thing start to finish nonstop, you don't want to refresh things or, or, or keep, you know, kind of going back and then, and then presenting it again and then showing how you got to where you are. You know, you just blast forward as fast as you can. Although I did think, you know, the, the Netflix thing is kind of an interesting tangent. Um, when we think of the consumables on your device. And what you had mentioned something in terms of the, the Netflix originals. Yep. Um, and I guess I see that as, you know, almost begging the question, why would the content provider start creating content? Disney did it. Discovery did it. Um, you know, there, there's, there's numerous organizations that have started to create their own stuff for their own channel, which yep. National Geographic maybe yep. one of the early ones. So what, how is that different actually than our traditional consumption? You know, and then I start to think maybe they're, they're on to something because it's, it really is that kind of pay to play or that yep. you will actually create stuff. And if people want it, you'll be able to tell right away. So you can modify it and tweak it um, to serve the needs of the consumer right? versus just producing it and then crossing your fingers. Well, and if you think about, you know, the, the revolution that HBO was in TV 15 years ago, I mean, they, they still remain, at, you know, kind of at the, the height of, of creative television for the last two decades. And, and part of it was they want to make their own series in which they were not beholden to advertisers. They could make their own rules. And so they created television, you know, things like The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, uh, Sex in the City, uh, you know, shows from different genres. Any, by the way, just going on record, I... I... No clue. I've heard of the Sopranos. The other two you mentioned, not a clue. Yeah, all three wonderful, well-written shows, right? They're headed towards very. The three of them are headed towards extremely different audiences, of which I'm. I'm not sure if I'm the audience for any of those three shows, but you know, <laughs> well-written, smart uh, comedy dramas, right? And the bottom line is, is that they would have never survived on network television, even even cable television. They would have had a hard time with, right? But now they own that content forever and ever and ever, and I'm sure it's paid them back, you know, twenty five times fold. And you know, I think the same is probably true of Netflix, right? That they don't have to be beholden to a network or a production studio that will license them content after the fact. They can just own hot stuff that was hot but maybe too hot for cable television too hot for network television and then and then go from there and i think yeah, there also might be a, a good insight into what their profit margin is yeah. to produce this stuff yep you know they must have the the the, the capabilities which you know it's some pretty impressive um i don't know filming yeah not simple stuff yep. i don't know but that that is interesting and i i like to look at it and think what's the next thing you know, okay, they're still serving up a pretty simple need. You know, they're killing time. Yep. Be the next thing that they could get into. You know, imagine that interface in education. You know, if you could just yank out all of the, the nonsense stuff, just the pure entertainment stuff, and go after just the education part. And then if you built for that, They've got it. I mean, it's like YouTube. They've already got the interface. Right. And by the way, I don't have a Netflix account. You know, I, I share one occasionally, but it's it's uh, it's something that isn't necessarily part of my life. But I do think it's kind of interesting that 
that they're able to serve up that quantity of content at your disposal on any device on demand. I mean, that's okay. Great. We've, we've proved it with the, with the ice cream and strawberries. Now let's prove it with, I mean, what if Moodle was that powerful? You know, what if you just binged your classes? Yep. Binged the, the lectures because yep. they, they were not some recording some Harvard guy, you know, scratching on a chalkboard. You know, it, this was just full on high powered professional. Right. Yeah. Well produced. Yep. Yep. I mean, with all the bells and whistles and, and the, the, you know, the psychology and the, you know, the instructional design and everything else. I mean, they're proving that this can be done. Yep. You can do it with a nice movie that grabs the attention of everybody. Why can't you do it with educational materials or content? So I see that as, you know, what if there was Netflix EDU? You know, and here we go. Just a thought. Yep, absolutely. I want to acknowledge one comment in, in the chat going on right now at, at, in our YouTube channel. Uh, Marta notes that, um, that she'd read somewhere that, that Netflix is losing content and therefore creating more, uh, as, as we were mentioning. And I do believe that's correct, that uh, a lot of uh, uh, studios that are related to broadcast networks have been a little more cautious about uh, licensing their content to, to Netflix because they perceive them very correctly as maybe being the competitor to broadcast television. And that makes it all the smarter than that, that you know, Netflix now has uh, you know, dozens of series that they are, are um, that they are making that really creates a lot of, 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 of their own content that may be worth the $10 a month for individuals to pick up. So good comments in the chat room. Well, Martin, it looks like we're nearing the top of the hour, so I think we'll go ahead and head towards our Geeks of the Week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go first. Mine's, yes. Mine doesn't have a great demonstration, um, so uh, I just wanted to mention this because I read about this earlier today, and it kind of blew my mind. Um, there was a, a, an amazing tool released today by Amazon Web Service called Amazon Recognition, which is an image, image detection and recognition powered by deep learning. And we've talked about deep learning quite a bit here on the podcast, but... Um, there is a new service available that you can actually access with one of the Amazon Web Services free tiers. Amazon will give you a relatively small Web Services account. You can put up your own website on that account. You can use some of their, their machine learning services. And, and <laughs> again, a very low end in comparison to the, you know, the, the spendier commercial products. But you can identify up to four or five um, thousand images. I think it's in a month in the free account. But the reason why this is an interesting uh, a tool is that they've been working on using machine learning to do things like facial analysis in order to identify people by the factors and statistics that go into their face. So the example on their webpage is they have taken a picture of a man and a woman standing in Seattle. You know it's Seattle because there's a space needle in the background and um, they have taken um, the picture um, and they've uh, started narrowing down who this is by pieces of information. It's 99.9% .9 uh, likely that it's a face. It's 100% that appears to be female. It's 92.8% likely that they're smiling. 99% appears to be happy. 99% appears to be or not wearing glasses. 94% not wearing sunglasses, 94% eyes open, 81% mouth is closed, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
um, in order to try to identify things about that photograph and categorize it. Um, but what caught my eye about the story and the way other media people reported it was that they uploaded a picture of a dog. It was able to identify the dog as a golden retriever, which is a very interesting machine learning uh, uh, trick that if it's, you know, uh, um, uh, if it's if it's true, that's able to identify things to that 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 point. That's a really interesting tool that's now available to you as a consumer. I was not able to get to the tool. I have used Amazon Web Services, and it said my account was closed, and I didn't know what that meant, so I'll need to play around with that in the next week or so. But Amazon recognition could be at least a fun party trick, but eventually a really powerful tool. And an API, by the way, you can plug into that you could add facial recognition to uh, a lot of different interesting applications. Uh, by the way, for those of you that don't know this, Facebook has been uh, uh, has a really, really, really excellent facial recognition uh, logarithm that you may have seen at work before. It will ask you things when you're looking at a photo. Do you want to take so-and-so because it recognizes that person as so-and-so? Um, um, and uh, it, there's implications to that, obviously, uh, much more uh, uh, interesting than the, the five or so minutes we'll spend talking about tonight. But uh, interesting tool. So Amazon um, uh, recognition available at the Amazon Web Services website, aws.amazon.com. Interesting. Yeah, I was looking at that, and, you know, a couple of things popped into my mind. One, um, when my... Well, when iPhoto first came out with facial recognition, do you remember that? Yes, I do. Well, my kids tried it with the dog and with a doll, and it failed on both of them. It just couldn't see anything, which I found kind of interesting because, I, you know, dogs look like their owners. Anyone can see that, so why can't the computer? But literally, it was it was at a total loss. But it also came up with some unusual connections, like it would pick up cousins they're different people, but it would think they're the same person. I thought, wow, I wow. never had that trouble. But when I'm looking also at the um, the facial analysis of the woman in Seattle, yep, and it it says appears to be female 100%. Imagine somebody in say North Carolina getting a hold of this, and what if you had to pass this ID camera before you went into a bathroom, and it gave you your percentage of a gender. How does it know it's a hundred percent female? You know, I just I think that's a. It, my guess is that that better be binary. Yeah. Well, and there isn't a ninety-seven percent or anything other than one hundred percent. Right. So, well, know. yeah, and that that gets pretty utopia. Or I'm sorry, that gets pretty dystopian pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, when I see that, and I think hundred percent female. Okay, what are your choices? <laughs> Right, and and by the way, that's the only uh, that's the only one that's at a hundred percent too of that list. No, yeah, that's that's what keyed it for me. I thought it appears to be a face, ninety nine point nine, but it knows that what might be a face. Technically, if it doesn't know to within one in a thousand that it's a face, it can't know if it's a female face. Right. Yeah. So you know, remember that <laughs> in your statistics. Um, but anyway, that yeah, it's interesting. I. I I, I'm guessing that a lot of this is probably technology drifting out of NSA or something that, you know, maybe they make a deal and say, we'll give you the first five years of our development for facial recognition. If then we can port it out to a cell phone and, you know, you'll get the next latest stuff, but we got to be able to do something else with it because you're not going to continue to pay us. Just a thought. 
Yep, interesting. Anyway. So, and Martin, you're going to show us tonight the uh, FLIR? FLIR? It's F-L-I-R. It's a, the I-R is the infrared. Um, what I've got is a, a camera here. That's, this is it right here. It's a, a small camera, about an inch by two inches by half an inch, that has a um, dongle, um, lightning dongle, that plugs into an iPhone or, in my case, an iPad. I mean, an iPod. One of the few people with one of these guys. So what I've done is I've put it into the bottom, and it's facing you. It can go in either way. And what I'm going to do is turn it around and hold it up to the camera. So what it's got, you can see my face there. It's actually an infrared. Let me turn off the light here. <clears throat> it's an infrared image. I don't know if that helps it. Is that oh, any well. It's pretty white. Um, turn on that light again. But what it does is it sees in the dark. Um, let me uh, turn it back on here. And what I'm going to do is show you some images. Um, this is my dog. He's got a cold nose. That's what black means. Right. <laughs> right he is. Um, you can see further out, he's sitting in the kitchen. So you can see kind of the, the radiation around him. And if he gets up and walks away, um, it's kind of cool because you see what he, where he used to be sitting. This is, um, I believe my daughter drinking a cold beverage. You can tell it's cold by the, uh, by the, color. But what's interesting is I can actually touch on this. And what it has done is the colors are scaled. So basically, it's got a degree, a, a temperature radius or uh, range. And it locks in the range, which means then the colors mean something absolute. So I can go back to a photo and actually measure the temperature of the picture, not not when it's being taken, but later. Because wow. it records that. Because if you can imagine, it's got this range, and it scales the range. So if it's hot, it moves way up to the hot side. So it, it, it washes out at the highest temperature and then goes down so many degrees. Or if it's cold, it goes down, or it goes from the coldest and then up so many degrees. So it literally locks in the range within the, the metadata of the photo so I can go back and actually measure the temperature just by having the picture. Well. Wow. You know, another thing that, that's kind of fascinating about all of this um, is it sees in the dark, too. So I can walk around. You know, we have a lot of urban deer around here. But I can literally go out in the dark and scan around and see the deer in the dark. And I can actually see them through the bushes, too. It's There they are. You know, it's pitch black out, but I'm actually looking around. Now, this kind of technology, obviously, the military has been using it. Um, and then there are hunters who hunt predators and things like that. But it's dropped down to between $200-$250 for a camera like this. What I did then is I went on Amazon and I got a, a um, <clears throat> I guess this, it's right here, a lightning adapter. So it's got lightning on one end and then the, the uh, female port on the other. So I can literally plug my camera into a cable now and then plug the cable into the device, whether it's an iPad, iPhone, iPod, and now I've got um, the ability to use the camera in a, uh, in a much more versatile way. This records video. 
I can take still images, um, and it's got basically the full features. And there are companies that are producing um, basically scientific software for it. So um, I can do analysis of uh, I could come to your house and you want to redo your basement. I could <laughs> look through your basement and show you the heat loss sources of where right. you beef up the insulation. Um, you know, it's things like that. And so it's giving the kids and schools the ability to work in the infrared. Um, I can do material testing. You could put bags over it because this, the infrared goes through some materials, but not others. Um, and of course, because it records temperature, a lot of people are using it for analysis of engines, electric motors, um, any, you know, even computers to see where the, the primary heat source is. So it's, it's a whole, um, new avenue in technology. It's been out for a little bit, but it's just getting simpler and cheaper. Yeah. Instead of six grand, which is what it used to be, it's now 250 bucks on Amazon. Yep. And that, that, <clears throat> well, that's the kind of stuff, Martin, that in the, I know you always have one or two of these gadgets that you're re either reviewing or, or taking a look at the, you can add so much shockingly amazing functionality to, um, you know, to, to, and it's really, you know, there's, there's a lot of mobile devices that hook up to these things, but there's a particularly large set of these for, you know, iPad, iPod, iPhones that that's stunning that what you can do, um, from a measurement standpoint. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Um, super awesome. Um, it is now, uh, 10 minutes after nine. Wow. We actually, we went, we went over, uh, tonight. Uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. Uh, first of all, Martin, uh, uh, where can we find you in the world? Well, I live at the University of Montana, um, in the College of Education, Department of Teaching and Learning. You can find me there. You can find me, um, at National Science Teachers Association's, uh, technology blog. Um, I, I'm the lead technology reviewer. Um, and I also write uh, for both, uh, the technology and what's called Science 2.0. Um, I am a, I didn't, haven't mentioned this before, I'm a solar system educator with NASA and Jet Propulsion Lab, so you can track me down that direction. I've been blogging since about 2000. <laughs> um, on, I write a column called The Accretion Desk. Uh, about space science on um, what's now an internet publication called Meteorite Times. You can track me down there. Um, and I've got a few other gigs that a quick Google search will, will pick up. So you can uh, do what, do any of those, LONs and NCCE, since we're coming up on the conference here soon. Yep, um, and you're on the board, I'm, I believe. On the board of, the, of NCCE. I'll be seeing you out in Portland. Yep, and more about that in coming weeks. In fact, I think we're going to have a special guest on the podcast uh, in early January related to the upcoming MCC conference. So um, so I'm Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director, Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy State Patrol School of Montana. I'm a doctoral candidate in teaching and learning at the University of Montana. In fact, uh, sitting virtually across from me is, is Martin, my <laughs> doctoral advisor, as we painstakingly uh, plunge through the remaining hopefully six to eight months of my dissertation work. Um, I'm also the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Community Education. You can find me online um, at uh, Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter or where I blog for NCC at blog.ncc.org or find out more about my work uh, with the Montana Digital Academy at montanadigitalacademy.org. This is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. Um, it is every Wednesday at... 
um, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Actually, that's totally the wrong time. 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Pacific, and I don't remember what it is, UTC, but um, uh, we're here almost every Wednesday uh, unless uh, we're not able to make it any given week. Uh, usually our, our, our um, co-host leader is uh, Wes Fryer, um, who is sick tonight, although joining us via the chat room. So apparently he was pulled back from his <laughs> special assignment in the depths of Eastern Europe. So uh, we hope to see you soon. Uh, thanks for watching tonight and have a great evening. Thank you very much.